Hello, and a very warm welcome to this Net Wealth Master Investor webinar, tantalizingly entitled Adapting to the New Normal Investing in Volatile Times. We'll be with you for the next hour. So just to explain the format and how you, the audience, can participate if you haven't done so already. I'll be talking to Chief Economic Strategist Gerard, Jerry Lyons about the bigger picture and then we'll be hearing from Matt Conradi who is NetWealth's Head of Client Advisory. He will talk to you about how you can't just survive the volatility but thrive. Of course you can ask questions by writing in the chat box which I'll put to the gentleman time permitting. So first up, NetWealth's economic strategist Jerry Lyons. And Jerry, I won't start off by saying unprecedented times because that's become a cliche, but volatility, the new norm, what do you put that down to? Well, first, it's great to be here. Hello to everyone. Um, basically, it's a period of tremendous uncertainty, not just here in the UK, but globally. And that's leading to the volatility that you alluded to in your question. I would say it's primarily linked to uncertainty about policy and uncertainty about the economic outlook. I think as we move through the next year, there will be political and geopolitical uncertainty too. But for the moment, it's really about policy uncertainty in particular and the end of cheap money. Since the 2008 global financial crisis, we in the markets have become used to cheap money. Interest rates have been at very low levels. Monetary policy has always responded to every shock with central banks either pushing rates down or adding liquidity. But over the last couple of years, we've seen the significant tightening of monetary policy with interest rates rising sharply. And it's the transition to that and also the uncertainty about where rates will actually settle that's adding to the uncertainty. Then on top of that, the economic outlook is clearly uncertain. Uh, we're seeing high inflation, much higher than many people expected. It has to be said at net wealth, we've been pretty cautious about the inflation outlook over the last couple of years. But markets, particularly in the West, I think are going to go through a few stages. For the moment, it's uncertainty about where inflation is going to settle. Then the focus will be about growth. And I think that will be a particularly uncertain debate. And then I think it's going to move on to debt. So bring it together, it's uncertainty about the policy outlook and in particular the end of cheap money. And I think we're seeing an evolution from a focus on inflation now to soon a focus on growth and then it will be debt issues. And probably over the next year and a half to add to all of this, it will be politics as well. Okay, I'm gonna share this stage with you now, Jerry. So as you were saying, the Bank of England, it's tannoying um, the end of cheap money. So what does that mean? For the economy that's a phd thesis in itself isn't it yes it is actually i probably would push back about your use of the word tannoy um whenever i listen to tannoys they tend to be quite clear and very loud in contrast i would argue that the bank of england has been very unclear and at times muted um tannoys often about sounding alarms maybe i would say an alarm bell has finally gone off at the Bank of England because last week they were sparked into action. I think the challenge has been that the Bank of England has been behind the curve. They've not read the inflation picture well. Unlike the US Federal Reserve, their counterpart in the States, the Bank of England has been unclear in its communication. So a couple of weeks ago, the US Federal Reserve was able, in the pretty similar environment to the UK, I would argue, the US Federal Reserve was able to speak with authority and say, look, we're having a pause. 
The markets regarded it as a so-called hawkish pause. The Americans pausing for the moment, but still with a bias to raise rates, partly because of the lack of credibility at the Bank of England. And also it has to be said because the last two inflation figures and the last monthly jobs data showed inflationary pressures. The Bank of England last week was forced to react. Now the markets have discounted interest rates going to 6%, which I think could cause a recession if they go that high. The Bank of England by acting last week by pushing rates up by a half a percent to 5% is now trying to regain some credibility. If the next few inflation figures are not as bad and the bank continues to sort of push rates up, then we might get away with rates peaking at five and a quarter to five and a half. But the message from the Bank of England finally now in the last week or so has started to be coming back to your question about Tannoy is about trying to communicate a clearer message that they're going to get on top of inflation. That's a bit of a punchy statement saying that the Bank of England has lost credibility. I, I wonder at what point they started to lose credibility and, and who would want to be a member of the Monetary Policy Committee these days? Yeah, there's a whole different array of features to in terms of answering that question. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I testified to the Treasury Select Committee and it was about monetary policy. And the focus was very much on quantitative easing. And I think in the popular debate, we often talk about policy rates as we've been doing so far, but often we don't speak enough about quantitative easing, which effectively is the printing of money. And we've had three phases of quantitative easing since 2008. And testifying to the Treasury Select Committee, I called them the good, the unnecessary, and the bad. It was very good after the global financial crisis. Then the Bank of England, like other central banks, pumped in money, pumped in liquidity, pulled us back from possible depression. Then we had 12, 13, 14 years of unnecessary pumping of money into the system. That was not helpful. Cheap money led to, led to lots of problems. But coming back to your question, I think they really lost credibility in the last couple of years. Now, I will give them flack and say when the pandemic hit, it's difficult to criticize anyone for their immediate actions because there was so much uncertainty. But very quickly, it became clear that the pandemic was different to the global financial crisis. The pandemic was a supply side shock. The Bank of England therefore should have learned that quantitative easing in response to the pandemic was not only the wrong policy, but made the inflation outlook worse. And so we basically had a combination of supply side shocks um, added to by the war in Ukraine, plus very poor monetary policy. And I think that's when the bank really started to lose credibility. And I remember in particular two years ago, February of 2021, then inflation was at 0.4%. And at net wealth, we asked the question in one of our pieces, which P is it? Is inflation going to pass through quickly, persist or become permanent? We said, unlike the Bank of England, we said it would not pass through quickly, it would persist. We didn't think it would become permanent. But then the Bank of England used the phrase transitory. They thought inflation would pass through quickly. They should have then been raising rates, Inflation was picking up, the economy was recovering, but instead the bank then told the city to prepare for negative interest rates. So they got it wrong, they misread the economy, but they didn't really respond. There's nothing wrong with making mistakes, but it's about learning from your mistakes. And instead of learning and reacting, they actually were quite arrogant in some respects. They persisted with the policy that was wrong. And now that we're playing catch up, and that's the challenge. And the catch up is painful as we're seeing for many parts of the economy. 
So rather than trying to beat inflation into submission, should the Bank of England be listening to the International Monetary Fund um, spokesperson there saying um, that we just put up with inflation at its current levels to avert financial crisis? Yeah, that's a very difficult thing to take at face value in some respects. It's juggling three different balls in the air because what you have is you need as a central bank to keep inflation in check. You also need to be mindful of financial stability. And I would say that's more an issue or has been more of an issue in America this year with the banking crisis rather than the UK, where the banking sector seems in good shape. But the third ball is about growth itself. And that's the challenge. Um, monetary policy, as we all know, acts with a long and variable lag. Um, the analogy I always used to use was like it was turning the shower knob in a hotel. You basically, you're not quite sure when it's going to go from hot to cold or cold to hot, depending on which way you're turning it. And it takes some time. And the economy is like that. And the real danger is that there is now a lot of monetary policy tightening in the pipeline. We've gone from 0.1 to 5%. We also have gone from quantitative easing, pumping in liquidity, to quantitative tightening, putting some liquidity out. And then on top of that, now because of the lack of credibility, the bank is being forced to raise rates even further. Ideally, I would like rates to pause. We were using the three Ps a moment ago um, about pass-through, persist, or permanent. We've been talking about a different set of Ps recently about pivots, peaking, and pausing. The markets a few weeks ago were hoping that central banks would pivot and cut rates. That seems premature. But in America, they've certainly been able to pause. Here in the UK, they're still pushing rates up to a new peak. But the challenge is that the economy will start to feel the real strains as rates go higher and higher, particularly vulnerable or exposed sectors, not vulnerable sectors, let's say exposed sectors, housing in particular. So there are challenges. Uh, two wrongs don't make a right. The first wrong is that keeping policy too loose in the good times and it's inflation. The second wrong would be to overdo it now and tighten too much. And it's a delicate balancing act coming back to your question about growth, financial stability and inflation. Okay, before we start to talk about um, the markets, obviously the Bank of England isn't independent. It doesn't tend to work unilaterally because there is the Chancellor of the Exchequer. What would you be advising him to do from a political point of view? What can he do to mitigate the current situation? Yeah, uh, well, a year ago, um, Boris Johnson, when he was Prime Minister, invited in four economists um, to come in to speak to him, just one meeting. And it then leaked out, as these things do, into the press. And um, what leaked into the press was that Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, and myself both stressed the need to have some context put to the general public. And then before Liz Truss became prime minister, she invited some economists in. Um, and I went to two meetings. I didn't see her once she became prime minister. But I stressed then two things you needed to do to focus on growth, but also, very importantly, as the Financial Times talked about when I was talking to them at the time, keep the markets on side. So I would put all three together. You need to put context there for the general public, for business. You need to focus on growth, but also you need to very much keep the markets on side. And to his credit, Hunt has actually kept the markets on side. And coming back to the Bank of England, that's something they're trying to do now. The challenge 
um, I wrote about this in the Times about a month or so ago. The challenge really when you step back and look at things is something that the OBR alluded to back in March at the time of the last budget, which is the high level of debt in the UK. Now, debt is there to help us through the difficult times, but the level of debt can start to constrain you. And the International Monetary Fund has pointed out that six of the seven G7 countries are possibly in the debt trap, particularly in the next few years. And the challenge then is what happens, because a debt trap is when your debt to GDP goes above 100%. So debt is bigger than size of your economy, which is where we currently are in the UK. And then if your rate of economic growth doesn't keep up with the rate of interest you're paying on your debt, it's like maxing out on your credit card bill and not being able to pay the interest rate payments. So keeping debt down, making sure that growth is ticking over and keeping inflation in check so interest rates don't permanently um, or don't settle at a permanently higher level. They clearly will have to be much higher post this crisis than before. So the real issue is coming back context, keeping the markets on side, and actually trying to get inflation under control so you start to generate economic growth. Okay, obviously a lot of people watching are investing in companies. So I'm just wondering how this debt trap is filtering through. What are the secondary effects of debt on the, the world of the corporate? Yeah, well, I think it's important to stress that not everything is bad. Um, the jobs market in the UK is really very healthy. Employment is at an all-time high. While some people are really exposed to higher interest rates, there are a large group of people who will benefit from their savings and benefit from the environment at the moment. And likewise in the corporate sector, corporate balance sheets vary considerably. Some companies are in very good shape, their balance sheet's healthy, others are less so. And the challenge in the US is about a credit crunch because of the banking crisis forcing companies basically to not have access to credit. Here in the UK, thankfully, we're not in that situation. So it might be a smoother ride for the corporate sector, depending on how they are exposed to interest rates themselves. In the UK, one needs to differentiate, as we do at NetWealth, between the FTSE 100, which is very geared to financials, commodities, very different stage of the cycle, some of those, compared to the 250, the next 250 companies who are heavily linked to the domestic economic picture. And even though, thankfully, the UK has avoided recession over the last six to nine months, kept its head above water, the backdrop at the moment is one where growth isn't likely to accelerate. And as we touched on earlier, the fear is that because of high rates, that will keep growth capped and some fear it could yet force a recession. Hopefully, we will avoid the recession. But coming back to the corporate sector, one needs to differentiate across sector and size a company as well. So a question from the audience. Um, Jerry, will the Labour government frighten off FTSE 100 companies elsewhere? Yeah, one needs to look at what they do. Um, I heard Rachel Reeves speak a year ago at the Times CEO conference, and last Thursday morning I heard Keir Starmer speak. I must admit to my personal view was Rachel Reeves told the audience what they wanted to hear a year ago. She came across as very credible. Last Thursday, the worry was that Keir Starmer identified the issues, but what did he say? He said the market doesn't have the solution. Um, it was very much about government intervention. I think 
I'd leave it to people to make up their own political choices. It's quite clear what the issues are. Um, I think Labour is conscious of the fact that they want to keep business on side, but business is going to have to judge them by what they do, not just by what they say. And just following the story this week in The Times in particular, actually, is about how North Sea oil companies are responding to the energy levy. To put that in perspective, back in 2015, 16, North Sea oil companies were investing, I think it was about four billion pounds per quarter. Uh, by last year, it was down to 0.6 billion pounds per quarter. Obviously, other factors involved, including the climate agenda. So how these policy decisions are made does have real consequences in terms of the economy. So I'm not sure people will be scared off yet. I'm not sure if they'll be scared off even eventually. But what businesses will be doing will be engaging with Labour. If Labour does win, businesses will want to influence their thinking. And then they'll judge what they say versus what they do. Some markets and investors don't like uncertainty. Are you certain about which part of the economic cycle we're currently experiencing? Are we in a bull market or a bear market? Okay, in terms of the bull and bear market, I think the transition from um, cheap money to policy normalization has hit both equities and bonds quite hard over the last year. But more recently, we've started to see, one might call it a return to normal in the sense that bad economic news is taken badly by equity stock markets and taken well by bond markets. You might think, well, that's obvious, but it wasn't obvious like that three, six, nine months ago because all markets were being impacted by the increased cost of policy rates and the increasing cost of capital. Um, we only moved to a bull market for bonds when it's clear policy rates have peaked and inflation is in check, and then that will start to create a more favorable backdrop for equities as well. The global economy still has lots of positives going for it. Coming back to your original question about uncertainty, part of the, the, the challenge is that the policy room for maneuver is limited. Global debt levels are at an all-time high, as I touched on, central banks are having to tighten policy. Therefore, in terms of bull versus bear market, it very much comes down on the macro side to keeping inflation in check and then supply side policies, which is some respects linked to the politics as well. What can be done to allow the supply side of the economy to generate more investment? It's all the eyes actually, it's not just investment, it's about innovation, it's incentives, um, and also in the political sphere, reducing inequality but really getting the incentives for investors to be putting their money to work. So I, I would be more cautious about the next three, six, nine months, but more positive the further ahead one projects, whether one's looking at the UK or globally. International diversified portfolios, I still think would do pretty well. So we've got an assessment from someone in the audience who says, historically, all bear markets have had a big second leg down after a long period of seeming recovery. Will this be different? Okay, that's very much referring to the equity market itself. Um, the, since the 2008 global financial crisis, we've seen a very strange picture in the West where um, economies have been pretty sluggish. It's really Silicon Valley, the tech sector, 
an individual economy, say like the Republic of Ireland, bizarrely, that really have started to turn things around. For most of the other Western economies, it's been a pretty mixed picture. So we've not had that excessive valuations really built in to all the different sectors. Yes, all markets are having to adjust to the end of cheap money. But coming back to the question, it's about what's the next stage. If growth and inflation settle, um, if I think inflation will probably set around 3%. Growth in the UK settles around 1.5%. That's nominal GDP growth of 4.5%. If against that backdrop, policy measures can start to then allow the corporate sector to do more, as opposed to constrain them, then I think there's more reason to think that trend rate of growth can go higher. Just in blunt economic terms, think about it like this in the, the UK. Before 2008, and 2008 is the pivotal year, the global financial crisis. Before that, our trend rate of growth allowed us as a country to double in size in real terms, take out inflation, real terms every 32 years. Now our trend rate of growth allows us to double in size somewhere between 65 to 70 years. To become a really sustainable market, you need to get that trend rate of growth up and the rate at which we start to double down, down again. It will take some do, doing. So we're into our last 30 seconds, Jerry. Okay. So what would you like to reiterate? Well, it's the end of cheap money, I really think, is the key issue. Um, some sectors have been very much exposed to that. The LDI crisis last autumn in the UK highlighted that. We also saw that earlier this year in the States with the banking problems, particularly for regional banks. We still have some exposed sectors in the UK, not least of which is the property sector. I wouldn't be surprised if we see tensions there. I've written a couple of policy papers in the last couple of years that came out under the policy exchange banner, looking at the housing market. If you have time, look at those, because if there's a blended mortgages of the policy solution there, the point really is that many of these challenges we talk about have policy solutions. If we have the right policy solution, then that can make us more positive. But really, it's the transition from cheap money to policy normalization that is the key issue and as i've written in the ft yesterday and today i think we need to end with interest rates staying at a higher normal normalized rate i don't think we should expect interest rates to be cut and monetary policy to be able to be like general custer coming to the market's rescue in the future uh, basically we're in a very different environment now we're in an environment where policy rates will have to likely stay much higher post this crisis. There's not much room for policy maneuver and therefore one needs to be looking out for value in terms of investment opportunities. I'm still positive about the longer term outlook, but there's certainly still further sort of challenges in the next six to 12 months because of the ending of cheap money and really the need to get core inflation down. Would it be fair to add on two more P's, pragmatism and patience? Yeah, you can, pragmatism and patience, and hopefully companies will then start to have profits as well. That would justify the bull market that we're hopefully going to see in the future, but not just yet. Jerry, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you very much. So we've heard Jerry's assessment of the economy. So how can investors navigate this? I'm delighted to introduce Matt Conradi, who is NetWealth's Head of Client Advisory. He's had a long career in portfolio management.
questions and if you have any questions for Matt please do put them in the chat box and we'll address them at the end so Matt I'm handing over to you and just how can we thrive in this new norm how can we maximize our profit potential thanks Sarah well as Jerry just painted that picture there is lots of different things going on and it's lots of uncertainty what we need to do is think about the elements that we can control when we're investing, understand what our plans are and how we're positioned today. I think we need to be humble about how much we can predict what will happen in the short term of the next week or next month or next year and make sure we're positioned so that we can benefit for the long term and make sure that aligns with what we're trying to achieve. So what I wanted to do was help raise some of the things that you can do practically yourselves to think about your position today. Um, and where you're headed and what you're trying to do. So I'm going to share my screen um, and, and take you to an area uh, that NetWealth has developed called, called MyNetWealth. You can register to access this here at my.netwealth.com. And it's really about helping you understand where you're positioned and how your, your plans fit in in the future. And then we'll talk about constructing portfolios within that and what you can do based on, on what's going on at the moment. The first thing though, is to understand where you are positioned. I'm sure some of you have got spreadsheets at home um, things that you use to help you track where you are for your wealth. And really what we're trying to do here is, is make sure you have a sense for your starting point. How much have you got in different asset classes, in pensions, in ISAs, in maybe taxable investments as well? Because when you're thinking about controlling through these difficult environments, you want to make sure you're making sure that you're using the most of different tax wrappers, for example. So if you get additional tax relief on a pension contribution, that might significantly outweigh the investment returns you make if you leave it in a general investment account being subject to tax, making sure you're doing the sensible things. So where are you positioned today? What you can do with the wealth tracking is you can build up together all of your different accounts, wherever they are, if they're on platforms like Interactive Investor or Hargreaves Lansdowne, or maybe you've got a workplace pension, and you can drill into those accounts that you set up and look at individual assets. And what's really helpful here is we can drill through the specific funds and get a picture of the asset allocation. So if I take something like this, Aviva Schroeder Managed Balance S6 Pension Fund, the name doesn't give away exactly what it is. Balance, you work, might be 50-50. What we'll do is we'll help you see the actual underlying asset allocation of that. And although you could go and look at that on an individual fact sheet, what this tool will do is pull that together for all the different funds you might have, all of the different positions, and give you an aggregated view at the top level on this dashboard here. So you can see your total positioning. You can then think about the different accounts because maybe they're gonna be for different purposes. And I'm gonna to touch on that in a moment. Um, in the future because you might have some goals that are really long term and you might have some goals that are shorter term so it might be that you have some cash this is a national savings and investments income bond that might be a really sensible thing to have embedded in your plan um, just to help you with with one of your different objectives but what you want to do is understand exactly how you're positioned how the different parts are there and that might be with individual stocks it might be with um, the different funds and so on and again you can drill through and see those different levels of performance and how that changes through time. So to get that snapshot of where you're positioned today, understand your overall picture, then you need to, 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 to go back and think about putting that into your plan. So if you understand what you've got in different asset classes, how you're positioned, then we can think about what are you actually trying to achieve with investing? And I think a lot of investors just start by, I want to make as much return as possible, but they don't necessarily think about risk and how it fits into what they're trying to achieve. So yes, in the long run, we want to make return. But if one of your goals is needing the money in the short term, can you afford to take the risk in that short term to strive for extra return? If we take, for example, equity markets, they'll be quite volatile in any different period. If I just show you a different slide before we go into the, the details of that plan, 
I just want to show you this particular picture here, which is something about the FTSE one, uh, FTSE All Share. And we're looking back over the last uh, 25 years, going back to 1993. Um, and what we're seeing here is the grey bars are the total calendar year returns for the FTSE All Share. What we can see is that there's lots of positive years, and that's great. But there are some negative years, and it's going to be volatile. So equity investments will be volatile, and this will be true for for every global equity market, there'll be ups and downs, but broadly there's been some really good years. But what the blue bars show is the intra year, in any given year, even in the positive years, you might see quite a big negative. So if I take, for example, uh, 2009, we're up 30% by the end of 2009, having come off the back of 2008, but during the year, intra year, you were down more than 20% at one point. Similarly in 2010, and actually what you see is that quite often, even in positive years, We'll have quite sizable negatives and so you need to make sure that you can be in a position that you can afford that negative to happen so if it's a long-term goal like your retirement and you're not going to necessarily touch that money for some time you can afford those ups and downs as long as you're comfortable with them you've got to feel that you're relaxed about the fact that you might see a negative return in that period it's not just going to be um, what you're going to experience in terms of if you stay there you need to make sure that you're not a forced seller or an uncomfortable seller and that's something to be thinking about um, in volatile times. So really, a lot of it is about time horizon. What this slide here looks at is about the different time horizons and the probability of losing money um, in those different periods. So we've taken um, different levels of risk. So risk level two is something that's very conservative. It's got around 20% in equities and a lot of things in government bonds and cash. A risk level seven is more like an equity investment. So that's the bright blue bars, dark blue bars, a risk level two, bright blue bars, a risk level seven, an equity type investment, and the gray ones are a balanced 50-50 portfolio. And what we're showing is different time periods over the last 25 years, what the percentage of times you would have lost money. So over one month, you'd have lost money, more times than not, you wouldn't lose money. So over one month, markets generally go up, so you would have generally made money. But even in the lowest risk portfolio, you might have lost money 30% of the time over one month. And in the highest risk portfolio, it's closer to 40%. But if we go all the way out to five years, in the lowest risk portfolio, in the middle portfolio, you wouldn't have lost money in any time period over the last five years, over a five-year rolling period over the last 25 years. And in risk level seven, it would be less than 20% of the time. So we can start to see that if we don't necessarily need the money for the next five years, then we can definitely afford to take the level of risk of, of say, a risk level four, a balanced portfolio. But we still need to be aware that in a risk level seven, an equity type portfolio, there's a chance of still losing some money over that time period. So matching up your different time periods with your different goals and the investments that you have is very important. And that's how you're going to be able to navigate through this uncertainty. It's making sure that if you get your investment decisions right for the long run, and Jerry talked earlier about how it's easier to think about what might be the right picture over 12 months or 24 months, you match that up with your right goals. So that even if, because what you don't want to be is right in the long run, but forced to sell because you need the money in the short term. And this is really where we go back to the idea of what is your plan? What is it you're trying to achieve with your investments? What is it you're actually um, looking to achieve? And what we have here in one of our tools is our wealth planning tool. And this is someone's total wealth modeled forward across a range of different scenarios. So thousands of different paths of different levels of volatility, ups and downs that are all plotted together. Um, and we look at different um, percentiles of different outcomes. So you can have a scenario that's in a strong outcome that started with a minus 20, but recovered very strongly. And this chart here gives you that range of outcomes, strong, average, and weak through time. But it overlays the different goals that someone might have. And I wanna to start to just talk about goals. So for this person, 
They're age 49 today, and their primary goal is retiring at 62 and having a net income of £5,500 um, a month, so net of tax income. But they've got two other goals. One is to pay down a chunk of their mortgage, 125000 you may all be thinking about this right now with interest rates rising. If you've got a, a fixed term mortgage that's about to come off, you may be thinking that actually you need to take some of your investments and pay down the mortgage because actually getting that guaranteed return might be a lot more attractive than striving for return in uncertain times. If you're going to do that, you need to make sure that when you need to dip into your investments to pay down your mortgage, are you matching that off against something that isn't going to be too volatile? You don't want to be paying the 125000 from a pot that's down 50% or down 30%. You want to be in something that's, that's more stable. And then they've got another gift here, which is a, a gift to a child called Jack of 50,000. And they need to think about their different pots of assets to meet those different goals. Um, and that's where you go into the different investments. And if you put things in the wealth tracker, you can see those different investments coming through. Now, it might be that gift for Jack of 50,000 that's relatively soon is actually held in cash. If you can get 4%, 4.5% on cash at the moment, then maybe that's the right thing to do if you're planning to give money away in a year's time, rather than that risk of being in something like risk level seven, an equity type portfolio that's going to fluctuate up and down over, over the next year. And there's a, nearly a 40% chance that you might have lost money versus cash where you're definitely going to make money and you know you're going to get more like 4% potentially. So for those short term goals, where we're not so worried about the impact of inflation over a one year period, then we might be able to, to, to hold them in cash. For a more medium term goal, like the mortgage pay down, maybe that's going to be in something like a risk level four. And we can always change this and adjust it. So we can think about, well, I want to plan for it, whether it was in risk level eight or risk level four or so on. And this will help you plan for the future in those different parts. And that's going to be perhaps for this person in an ISA. So they've got half their ISA at lower risk and half their ISA at higher risk. Now, by splitting up your different accounts into different, um, different levels of risk, it can become much easier to firstly feel comfortable so that you don't sell because you're so uncomfortable with the position. You know that you've got a pot that can maybe fluctuate more and a pot that won't fluctuate so much. And then you can understand how to populate that. And in a moment, we'll move on to what you might want to invest in the different things you do. But let's just think about, OK, we've got those different parts. How does that go back to my overall plan? And that's what this bit here does, helps you visualise meeting those goals. So can I afford to pay down the mortgage in that one chunk? Can I afford to give the money away? Um, and you can start to see that picture. So here we see, for example, that gift to Jack. Then we see the one-off with mortgage withdrawal, and then they start their retirement. And they've actually they've got some DV pension income because this tool is very um, sophisticated. It lets you put in things like state pensions, defined benefit pensions. It deals with tax of moving money from pensions to ISAs and general investment accounts um, and all of the different elements that are moving on there. So you can get a picture whether you're on track or not. So we can use it really for those two purposes. One is to help us line up which pots should be invested in different ways. And the other is to check that overall that still makes sense because it can be harder when you're breaking it down into different parts to make sure your big picture is still on track or not. And if you want to then talk to someone, one of the things that NetWealth offers is the ability just to book in a call at any moment uh, with an advisor. You can just click there um, and you can speak to one of us about what you're trying to do and can help you think about your goals and your objectives as well. Uh, but I think when we've so we've thought about making sure we understand where we're positioned today thinking about our plan as well then we've got to think about well how do i actually populate that portfolio and that's the really difficult part isn't it because as jerry pointed out earlier we're in this really uncertain time where we've got quite a lot of different things going on we're quite reliant on whether uh, the the central banks get it right or not so we're having to trust that they're going to not 
um, put rates too high that causes a recession. We need to understand what that means for different companies and so on. And we need to think about different asset classes. And it's been difficult historically, certainly over the last 10 years, to, to think about different asset classes and, and how they might help. Because one of the key other big asset classes out there has been fixed income. And it's not looked like a particularly attractive thing because, well, we've seen what's happened. Interest rates have risen, bonds fell in value. And that's really what we see on this chart here happened in 2022. Equity markets fell, which is the blue bar. That's the biggest intra-year drawdown uh, for equity markets. And at the same time, bond markets were down a lot as well. So if you had long duration bonds, you really lost quite a lot of money last year. However, that's reset the, the position. And we might now be in a scenario where we'll start to see these, um, the more historic relationship of bonds starting to provide protection at moments of market stress. So going back to scenarios like 2011, 10 and 12, well, when the equity markets were down, substantially the blue bar, the grey bar of bonds started to provide protection. And this is really about one of the things that you can do. You're not necessarily going to make the call right every week, every month to move your portfolio around to navigate the ups and downs and the uncertain things, because you can't control what the central bank will do or, or what will happen with a global geopolitical event like what's going on in Russia at the moment and in the Ukraine. But you can make sure your portfolio is there to withstand it and so that you can survive and actually thrive through this. So we thought about time horizon. The next thing is diversification. I mentioned fixed income. I think the other thing is, is understanding what do I mean by diversification within my asset classes? So that might be equity markets. Don't have everything in, in um, one type of stock. Don't have everything in one country or region um, in the stock markets. Same with fixed income, same with alternatives. So I saw some one of the questions was about um, some of the alternatives like infrastructure um, in portfolios. That's been a great asset class, but it's not necessarily going to outperform forever. And the same with gold as well as another question that came in around that. So if I look at this chart here, what we see is all the different little colored blocks, they're ranked each year, so from 2007 through to 2022, um, and they're ranked each year by the best performing at the top to the worst performing at the bottom. And what we see is there's no pattern. It's not that uh, every year that you've had that gold is always at the top, for example, if I take gold, it was the best performing in 2020 as a sterling based investor. It was one of the worst in 2021, and then it was a strong performer in 2022. And what we see if you try and time getting in and out, in and out of these assets is that you tend to buy it at the end of 2020, enjoy all the downside in 2021, and then you'll probably back out of it again before it goes up in 2022. It takes a very, very good investor to find all the ones that are at the bottom the year before to be at the top the year after. Better to be more diversified be more spread across those different asset classes, but understand what diversification really means. So when we're thinking about that, it's understanding what, what's happening with currency. So if you're investing in the FTSE 100, there's a relationship with the dollar to the FTSE 100 because of the metals and mining and energy stocks. If you're gonna invest in foreign markets, you need to understand what that currency might mean. So for us, when we invest in European equities, we've been hedging that Euro currency recently. And that's been really helpful. European equities have done very well this year, but the sterling has also done very well. So if you had a euro-based investment in European equities, you wouldn't be doing anywhere near as well in sterling if that's your base currency and what you need for the future. So really understand your diversification. Think carefully about the level of risk for different pots. So here we show the seven risk profiles that we invest in. You as an investor might have a broader range than that. When you look at the wealth planner, we go from cash up to the risk level um, eight and nine. That's to accept that you might want to invest in riskier things than we, than we invest in. But when we're thinking about those different risk profiles, they're always well diversified. You've got lots of different regions, lots of different sub-asset classes, whether that be um, high-grade corporate bonds, high-yield corporate bonds, emerging market debt, 
Um, and then alternatives such as commodities that we've recently added back into portfolios, really reflecting the fact that they'd rolled over a long way and they started to look a little bit more attractive potentially as an inflation hedge, might be gold, and then currencies. So yes, we might want sterling in the portfolios, particularly at the lower risk level where we don't want the volatility of currency because it can be very volatile. But as we go through the risk levels, maybe we want a little bit more currency because it can provide protection. The dollar, for example, at moments of market stress tends to do quite well. Same with the Japanese yen. And so you really need to understand what you've got embedded in your portfolios to, to be able to, to make sure that you're going to have something that can survive. So match up the different risk levels with the different sub goals. And then when you've got that level of risk, make sure it's diversified in there and you haven't just got one bond or 10 equities. You need to make sure that you've got a range of different outcomes to, to be diversified. So when we think about building portfolios, these are some sensible se sections to break it down into. Think firstly about strategically where you want to be positioned. So that goes back to your plan. What am I trying to do over the medium term for this goal? Am I trying to, in the short term, make sure I have 50,000 in one year's time? Maybe it's cash. Am I trying to make sure I beat inflation over the long run because I've got a 10, 20 year time horizon? Maybe it's going to be more equity allocations. That's the strategic allocations that you need to be thinking about. Um, and you don't want to be changing those all the time. You're not going to necessarily get it right. Big picture swinging from equities to cash and cash back to equities again. That's extremely hard to do. So match up your goal with your level of risk and the strategic level. Then we think about the instruments. So how are you actually going to pop them? Are you going to buy single stocks? Are you going to buy individual bonds? And there might be reasons for doing that, but make sure you're comfortable that you've really researched them and understood them. Think about the funds that you hold and whether they're truly diversified. If you think you've got three different UK funds, but are they all invested in the same underlying things, then maybe you haven't got any diversification. As an example, if you bought uh, the iShares FTSE 100, the Vanguard FTSE 100, and the UBS FTSE 100 tracker, you've got no diversification just because they're all tracking the same thing. That's a very um, sort of facetious example, but the same happens with active funds as well, where you'll find there's a lot of overlap and you're not necessarily getting that diversification. It can also happen with asset classes, where things might all be correlated being driven by interest rates, for example. We prefer passive funds predominantly because we don't see much evidence that active fund managers consistently outperform or that individuals can, can select those active funds before they're going to outperform. So they might have a period of outperformance. That's normally a pretty good guide for when they're not going to outperform again as they come back towards the average. So we tend to favor passive funds and it keeps the cost of investing down. And costs are really another thing that you can keep under your control and you can have a, a big impact on achieving your goals and getting good outcomes. It's keeping those costs as low as possible. And the final thing is cyclical position. So we shouldn't ignore the market that's going on around us. We shouldn't ignore what's happening. We shouldn't just pretend that we um, have to sit there and, and make no changes, but we need to be humble about the level of impact we're going to have and the degree to which we're going to make changes. So I mentioned before, don't swing from all in equities to all in cash if it's your pension for the long term, but you shouldn't necessarily ignore the fact that maybe the outlook for a certain stock doesn't look great um, or there's certain regions that might be coming under pressure and move around the asset classes in the sub-asset class level um, or specific risks and, and, and moving about there. So for example, if you're thinking about holding short dated bonds um, and you look at um, versus long dated bonds, if the level of interest rate exposure is similar um, and the level of yield you're getting, then you might not want that duration risk, that interest rate sensitivity, or other times you might want it. So think about that on a cyclical level and make adjustments, but be, be modest and be humble about how much impact you should be having um, because you won't get every call right. Um, and what you want to do is make sure that you're getting the majority of the long run driven from your strategic outcome that matches up with your goals and your objectives as well. So for us, that builds up into a portfolio that's well diversified across lots of different sub-asset classes, 
has the ability to make specific tweaks along the way when we think it's appropriate um, in, in different parts of it. So when we build out a portfolio here, like our balanced portfolio, we can make adjustments like holding some of the equal weighted um, S&P 500, which is going to reduce the exposure to those five or six largest tech stocks in the portfolio, that we think might be a little bit overvalued. Um, or we can add in things like um, broad commodities into the portfolio. Um, so we can make those six adjustments, but big picture, this is appropriate for someone who wants that balanced mix of, of equity and fixed income over the medium term. And that's what we're still going to stick true to um, through time. So when you're trying to, to sort of not just survive in these difficult times, but thrive, think about controlling the elements that you can, understanding where you're positioned today, what, how it fits into your plan. And if you need to make adjustments, what elements need to be longer term, what elements need to be shorter term. And when you're constructing your portfolios, you need to start thinking about um, the elements that, that you want to have diversification in. Is it truly diversified? Make sure you're not paying too much for investing in those different parts. Um, and then understand when to make cyclical adjustments, but not maybe too big of adjustments, because you need to be humble about the, 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 the amount of times you're going to get that right versus the market with all these uncertainties happening um, around you as well. So those are the main things that I wanted to cover. Um, I know I'm sure there'll be some questions and Sarah's back now to, uh, to take us through those. Um, thank you very much for sharing the net worth tools. Um, they're sophisticated, but for me, they're straightforward as well. And um, I love I love colours. I particularly love the protection through diversification chart. And I was trying to highlight um, when you know when cash came up, when gold came up. So um, let's talk about gold because we do have a question. Uh, gold. What is the best way of investing in gold? What are the options and the pros and cons of each? Well, I, I can touch on that, some of the specifics of different ways of doing it. And one way that we do is we buy a, a physically backed exchange traded fund in gold. Um, and so you know that they actually own the gold bars. So it's not a, a contract where someone's promising you the return of gold. And therefore, you actually have the risk of that person defaulting on their promise. Um, and you can still trade it easily as well. You can actually buy the gold and have it in a warehouse somewhere and someone to trust that. But probably you can outsource that to someone else and in a lower cost way get that exposure through a physically backed ETF. I think one thing that sterling based investors just need to remember when you're investing in gold, you're normally explicitly investing in the dollar as well. So the gold is priced in dollars. And, and too often I've seen people crow about the return that gold's made and then they've realized in sterling terms they haven't actually made the return at all. And you need to make sure you understand that. So you're going to hedge that, that risk, you're going to have that risk. How does it fit in? Maybe it's exactly what you want from the trade, but make sure you understand exactly what you're investing. And Jerry, um, just checking that your microphone's on. Jerry, what's uh, your view on gold at the moment? Yes, well, that table that Matt showed was very interesting because the two periods when gold has really been at the top were periods either when there was acute financial instability in the wake of 2008 or when there were really negative real interest rates, interest rates way below um, inflation. Uh, which was the case a few years ago. We're in a, an environment at the moment where uh, interest rates are now changing significantly, inflation decelerating, policy rates rising. So the macro backdrop is very different. Uh, in terms of the financial sector, clearly there are sort of pockets of financial instability. So some people in their portfolios will naturally look for gold. But the point is that there are certain circumstances when one can see at the time and also with hindsight when and why gold has outperformed. 
Now, Joey, I know you were talking about the Bank of England, but let's talk about retail banking, um, Matt. Um, with high interest rates, asks someone, uh, should bank savings accounts be considered as part of a varied investment portfolio? Sorry about that, muted there. Uh, I think definitely, uh, again, as it matches up for the right goal. So if I'm thinking about the long term, over 20 years, then cash is probably not the right place to be unless I'm very cautious. If I'm not prepared to accept any fluctuations in my capital value, then I'll have to accept that I'll probably lose money in real terms as an inflation will erode over time. And that's what we'd expect to happen with a cash deposit. So although interest rates have risen and much higher than we've seen them for the last 10 years, remember that they're still well, well below rates of inflation right now. So you are losing money in, in real terms and you're not even giving yourself a chance to, to make money in real terms because that's what, that's what we expect to see from cash. However, it depends what you're comparing that against. If you need the money next year or next week, then it makes sense. So always having an emergency fund in cash is a sensible thing to do. And the other thing that I've seen, seen more recently as well um, that drives in a similar sort of vein is this idea around debts. You know, when, when the cost of debt was low, Having a big mortgage when you were paying 1% or 2% on that maybe made sense. If you're going to have low cost, low risk investments now, you need to make sure that they're going to beat the cost of that debt. Otherwise, the best thing you can do is make the guaranteed return of paying down that debt. And as well, particularly if it's not in a tax privileged wrapper. So if you think about if you've got an investment that makes you um, 4%, but you pay away nearly 50% in tax, now, now you're, going to, you're only going to get a 2% return and your cost of debt is probably significantly higher. So that's really where you need to be thinking about, yes, having some cash, but understanding how it fits into the wider plan. Jerry, do you think we could ever become a cashless economy? I saw in uh, one of the papers this morning that the Bank of England was considering a Brit coin, which I assumed was a digital currency, but surely all economies, particularly the dark arts, the black economy, rely on cash. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective here. Um, first, in terms of cashless society, uh, there was an interesting report uh, called The Future of Finance that was commissioned by the Bank of England back in 2019. And the key tenant of that was that then, even pre-pandemic, how Western economies were moving towards less use of cash, um, led by Sweden, I think it was, but Scandinavian countries, closely followed by Britain. At the same time now, on top of that, superimposed on that, we have the central bank digital currency focus, which is led by China and one or two other countries in particular. The bank, the House of Lords uh, Economics Committee last year tool called uh, central bank digital currency an answer in, uh, so was it a solution to a question that has yet to be asked, i.e. A solution in search of a question. Why do you need the central bank digital currency? Everyone tells you why, but when you stand back and analyze it, the answers aren't really there. So the point is that cash is becoming less and less used. I think it's important to stress that there is still a large number of unbanked people who are outside the financial system in the West, including the UK, and therefore it's difficult to move fully to a cash cashless society. Contrary to popular perception, is not the data shows it's not just older people. A lot of young people like to use cash. Those who find it difficult to keep to a budget or don't have much income, and therefore use of cash is a good constraining influence for them. 
so it's difficult, but everyone has their own personal preferences. But in economic terms, the transmission of policy shouldn't be impacted, but clearly it has a disproportionate effect on how it impacts people's lives if they live in the countryside or if they don't have much room for manoeuvre. So Matt, I think this is one of the most important questions that we've been asked in this webinar, and it's what is your advice for beginners with less disposable income? How can we invest wisely in this current climate? I think that's a, yeah, it's a very good question. And, and the first thing to do is to um, think about those goals and objectives. So wisely investing is not just about what you invest in, it's making sure that is the right thing for, for you to do. Um, for, so if we think that investing is right, with less disposable income, you need to be challenging how much you can save and not stopping saving if, if at all possible. So one of the things that concerns me most at this time of stress is that people won't save for their long-term goals. They'll do things like cut their um, pension contributions in order to try and cover their, their short-term costs and needs. As much as possible, try to avoid that because the benefits of things like compounding over time have a huge, huge impact. And then when you are going to invest, and if you're going to do it, make sure you use tax wrappers appropriately. So ISAs, pensions, makes a big difference where you can. And then and really invest cost efficiently. So we're a strong believer that you should be really careful that you don't pay away too much of the return that you could make in costs and fees. So if you have small amounts to invest, for example, make sure if you're going to use a platform to trade, they don't charge you 15 or 20 pounds a trade, it wipes out most of your return. If you're going to, to pay someone to invest for you, make sure you're not, they're not charging you 2%, 3% on the way into something. Um, because this can really, in difficult times, wipe out all the benefit. But investing should be relatively cost efficient, um, and that should be, mean that you can that you can get better returns from it. So there's no one perfect answer of buy this fund or do, do that thing, but you match up your goals to what you're doing and do the sensible things of using tax wrappers and keeping costs as low as possible, and that will give you a better outcome. So Jerry, um, Matt, talking about the delicious tax wrappers there, but what is the future for for tax? Is it going to be higher interest rates equals higher taxation? When it comes to fiscal policy, government spending and taxation, the choices are quite straightforward. The ideal situation is you have economic growth that boosts your tax revenues, allows governments to spend. But given that we already have public spending at a very high level, taxes at probably a 50 or 70 year high, is then the other three options. If you have fiscal constraints, you have three options then. You continue to borrow but then you need to keep the markets on side. You have austerity, but that didn't work 10 years ago, and I was arguing against that at the time, or you basically push taxes even higher. Um, now, what we have in the UK is a very fascinating debate behind the scenes about inheritance tax. The idea is that you should move it from away from giving inheritance from the person giving to tax it on the recipient as part of their income. Uh, behind the scenes, there's a focus about changing the taxation on housing. Um, there was a major review of UK housing and taxation a decade or so ago by the former Nobel laureate Merleys, who called stamp duty the most stupid tax. He used the word stupid because it taxes transactions. So the argument there is you move away from taxing housing by taxing stamp duty and transactions that taxing housing in a different way, maybe capital gains, but it's quite a complex area. 
or you move into the other debate, which is about just a general increase in taxation. And each year, the um, OBR has a review of the UK's economic situation. And the underlying thinking there is that because future trend growth is slow, because the population, or parts of it anyway, it's aging, but the average age is rising, uh, the tax take has to keep increasing. So in answer, it comes back to growth, austerity, higher taxes or borrow. The ideal situation is stronger economic growth. If you don't have that, then it becomes a more difficult policy choice ahead. Okay, we've got about one minute left, Matt. So I'm gonna give you the final question. For a balanced total return portfolio, where do you see the balances between growth and income? Hmm. If we can hear you. Uses myself again. Um, the, the, I think that's a very good question. Um, the, the role of, of income is, has really changed. We, for the last 10 years, perhaps we had to think of income coming from equity markets. So you had to think of income stocks, companies that were going to pay big dividends. But now we can think of income coming from other asset classes as interest rates have risen. Um, and I think that can be very attractive. Um, but it should be a balance. There's some great growth companies out there, and, and Joe mentioned before economies that we're trying to double every 10 years. If you can find companies that are, are doubling their earnings consistently, that's a, a great place to look for it. But you need to be careful not to overpay for them. So one of the concerns I would have around, for example, tech stocks um, is that maybe you're paying too much for that growth in earnings right now. Um, and so having a balance of some of, the, some of those things that have, give a little bit more income, a little bit more ballast is definitely the right thing to be doing. Um, and it's about mixing those things together and never skewing in one direction or another too much. Um, we've seen that far, far too often where certain different asset classes or subsectors become really in vogue. They normally come back again pretty quickly. Um, and so you need to balance that, that, that very carefully. Well, I'm hearing um, the same message from, from you and Jerry, which is there's upside and it's not all doom and gloom. Gentlemen, thank you very, very much indeed uh, for giving so much of your time this lunchtime. I want to thank everyone at NetWealth, particularly Joe Jeffrey and Master Investor. Together they made this webinar possible. Now, for more information about NetWealth and how they can support and help you, there's details either on the screen or pen and paper, netwealth.com and for Master Investor, masterinvestor.co.uk. Collectively, we can all become master investors. Thank you very much indeed. Take care. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you by Master Investor. For more investment and economics analysis, please visit masterinvestor.co.uk.